So John 11, hope you got your Bible open. Uh, One of the hardest things in our move has not been the packing or the unpacking. In fact, one of the hardest things was all of the little projects that had to be finished at our old house in order to put it on the market. Uh, I'm guessing like you, for the last 11 years, we just live with constant brokenness and disrepair in our house. Because who has time to fix things? Not me, not you. We've got jobs and TV to watch and ice cream to eat and things to do. So we just learn how to work the broken doorknob or how to not open that window or whatever the thing is. But all of a sudden, we had about a month, less than a month, in which we realized, oh my, we have all these things we have to get done. And so the last month of our time in Kansas was spent just doing project after project after project. In fact, our last day, as the movers are carrying things out, we found one project we flat forgot about. They removed the headboard from one of my daughter's wall, and we found a dent in the wall we'd completely forgotten about. It was from the time that she was practicing her front flips on her bed. She over-rotated, and now there's a cranium-sized dent in that wall uh, that new owners will get to <laughs> take care of uh, in the near future. Uh, when we were moving out, we, f- we realized we got a lot done, but there was a lot that still needed to be done. That's true in your house as well. Our, ho- our homes are always in need of, of constant repair and attention. Uh, our faith is the same way. Do you ever think about your faith in terms of its need for repair and healing? We don't. We treat faith sometimes like it's a museum piece. It's our faith in Christ is meant to be preserved, kept pristine, never sullied. But the reality is this, there's an ebb and flow to our faith in Christ. Our faith has a definite starting point, that's for sure. There's a time for every person when we are not people of faith, and and then for people of faith, we have an entry point into that faith. And then from there, faith is not just a nice, neat, upward trajectory. It has peaks and valleys, highs and lows, fractures and healings. It begins with an infancy, and then over the years and through the situations we face, our, our faith grows and matures. It's important you realize this because if you don't, here's what happens You come in here today perhaps hurt, your faith struggling, you're limping a bit, and you would feel like you are all alone in this. And if that's you, your prayer life is struggling, your time in the Word is non-existent, your faith in Christ is in a precarious place, welcome to the club. Church clothes cover a multitude of insecurities. We're not here today because we've got this figured out and settled. We're here today because we are broken people in need of a healing Christ. And John 11 is a story about faith. Faith that is broken and faith that is repaired and even faith that is born anew. Now you would say, ha ha, not so fast, new guy. John 11's not about faith. It's about Lazarus. And he's raised from the dead. I think you got it wrong. Well, you're right. Lazarus is in this story and he's raised from the dead. But the raising of Lazarus is secondary to the greater miracle of faith being awakened in people who previously had no faith. So regardless of where you are in your journey with Christ today, you're going to find yourself in John chapter 11. If you are not a believer, not a follower of Jesus, you're going to find yourself in these pages, in the people who 
don't believe in Christ, but then by the end of the story, they do place their faith in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus already, you're going to find yourself in this chapter, you're going to find yourself in the caricatures of people who have broken faith and incomplete faith, and yet because of the work and the grace of Jesus, their faith is strengthened and renewed in a miraculous way. This is the right Sunday for you and I to be together in John chapter 11. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is for you to trust Jesus with a faith that is either new or renewed. And to do this, I want to show you in our story four ways Jesus responds to people with broken faith. Follow along with me as I read. It's a long passage, John 11, starting in verse 1. And the story goes like this. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. 
Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. It's easy for me when I study the Bible, if, if I can break a passage into digestible sections. And, and for me, this passage, John 11, 1 through 45, breaks neatly into four sections based on interactions Jesus has. First with the disciples, second with Martha, third with Mary, and then fourth with the other people in attendance at the miracle that day. In each of these scenes, we see a different example of broken faith. There are nuances to each of them. And in each of these scenes, Jesus responds in a unique, different, restorative way to these people of broken faith. How does Jesus respond to you and I when our faith needs help? Let me share with you these four ways. If you're taking notes, number one, Jesus is intentional when our faith is ignorant. You may not like the word ignorant. It's not meant to be derogatory. But when our faith is ignorant, when our faith is ill-informed, Jesus is intentional. Verses 1 through 16 lay this out for us in his interaction with the disciples. When the scene opens, uh, you and I, we have more information than the disciples do. We know that there's an urgent need for Jesus to come. And the urgency is not that he would pay his last respects. The expectation from the sisters is that Jesus would come to Bethany and heal Lazarus. We know this, verse 4, Jesus tells us that this episode will not end in death. So you and I, the reader, we carry that knowledge with us. We have that knowledge the disciples don't. Jesus also says there's a goal in this whole scene. And what's that goal at the end of verse 4? He says this is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So in order for the Son to be glorified in this scenario, Lazarus' sickness must run its course. So Jesus delays two days before going to Bethany to see Martha and Mary and ultimately Lazarus. Now this is where the disciples enter the scene. About ten verses into the chapter It's just been you and me and Jesus getting this information together. And then Jesus tells the disciples, hey guys, pack up. We're going back to Judea, to Bethany. And it's in this instance that the disciples display their ignorant faith, their broken, ill-informed faith. Three simple ways they show their ignorant faith. First of all, when Jesus says it's time to go to Bethany in verse 7, well, the disciples respond with alarm. The last time they were in that region... 
these Jewish leaders tried to stone Jesus. He's a wanted man. And if they want the rabbi, they will also want his 12 cronies. Jesus, we don't want to go back there. Let's stay here and be safe. If we go back there, there's certain disaster waiting. So their ignorant faith is displayed in their fear of man rooted in past experiences. Second place, we see their ignorant faith, their ill-informed faith. In verse 11, Jesus, the great poet, tells the disciples, Lazarus is sleeping. The disciples, in their infinite knowledge, say, if he's sleeping, he's going to feel better. I mean, Jesus, come on. I I always feel better after a nap. Uh, Don't you feel it? Oh, I love naps. I had a nap yesterday. It felt like a million denarii when I woke up. You too, Andy. Yeah, the... This is how they make sense of the present situation. Jesus, Lazarus doesn't need you. He just needs to sleep it off. Third place they show their ignorance in this story. You're free to disagree with me on this one. Verse 16, Thomas speaks for the group with this sense of resignation. He says, let us also go with Jesus to Bethany that we may die with him. On a first reading, it may seem like this is a statement of bold faith and courage. Thomas is brave and he's going to take the lead for the disciples. But I read it different. You see, you and I, as readers, with knowledge that Jesus has in this story, we know how this scenario is going to end. Jesus has said this will not end in death. Thomas's conclusion is otherwise, we're all going to die. Now, I don't know what you call that. It may be courage, but it's a misplaced courage. It certainly is not faith, not a whole and mature faith. It's Thomas, the disciple, assuming he knows more than what his teacher knows. He's got the situation down. So the disciples, everywhere they look, they're surrounded by ignorance. They are ignorant about the events of the past. They're ignorant about the situation in the present. They're ignorant about the future and the way this whole scenario is going to play out. And why is it they're this way? Why is their faith so broken? Well, Jesus gives a diagnosis in verse 14. Look at what he says. It says, so then Jesus told the disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. These men are followers of Jesus, but they have a broken faith. They do not believe in the power and the person of Jesus as they ought to. So how does Jesus remedy this? How does he fix and respond to their ignorant faith? He delays. He doesn't rush to Bethany to heal Lazarus from his sickness. He stays put for two days. He lets Lazarus die. He lets the funeral happen. He lets the body be laid in the tomb. He does all of that intentionally. Why? He knows how he will be glorified in this scenario, and he wants to birth renewed faith in his disciples. Jesus is intentional. He is sovereign in this instance. There are times in our lives when Jesus doesn't just allow the hardship, but he appoints the hardship does so for us for the very same purpose that he does for the disciples and for Martha and for Mary and for everyone else in this scene. He does it so that faith would be awakened in us. His goal for us in this life is not our comfort and ease. It is our trust in him. This is where you would push back and say, that doesn't sound like a God of love. 
That doesn't sound like gentle Jesus, meek and mild that we sing about and, and, and that we've seen in our, our literature and our portraits and all of that. But I'm telling you, this is indeed evidence of Jesus' love. The, the text testifies of this. Look at verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He delayed because he loved Lazarus and his sisters. And since he loved these people, he allowed the hard day to come so the glorious day could follow. God sometimes appoints the hardship for us. The point in this is not that you and I would try to discern who the responsible party is for the things we've endured, the things we've suffered. But rather, the point is that you and I would trust in the God who heals the sick, raises the dead, saves those who come to him in faith in every situation we face. We look at our lives and we look at our scenarios with a sense of knowledge and understanding, but our, ours is such a finite understanding. We do not have this down. We don't see the past correctly. We cannot ascertain our present in proper terms. We cannot even imagine what the future holds for us, but he knows exactly what it is. And if he has to take us through the valley of the shadow of death in order for us to trust his rod and his staff, he is good enough and loving enough to do just that for us because he is our great treasure. He is our great reward. Not comfort in a life in a recliner. It is walking side by side with our Savior. That's where glory resides. So how does Jesus respond to us in our ignorant faith? He responds with intentionality sovereignty, orchestrates things so that you and I, though we are ill-informed, would see the glory of Christ unfold. There's a second way Jesus responds to broken faith in this story. If you're taking notes, number two, Jesus is gracious. Jesus is gracious when our faith is shallow. Jesus is gracious when our faith is shallow, verses 17 through 27. In the next scene, Jesus speaks with Martha, one of Lazarus's sisters. He's traveled to Bethany, their hometown. Martha runs out to meet Jesus. And, uh, and John tells us that by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. This is an important detail. John wants us to understand that Lazarus has not been in a coma, not in a deep sleep, He's not mostly dead. He's all dead. So Jesus gets on the scene and Martha comes to him. And at different points in this scene, Martha says things that seem profound and huge and as if she understands at a depth that others don't. But in her statements, she reveals a broken faith, a shallow faith. So she meets Jesus and in verse 21, she says to him, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's Martha's saying, Jesus, you're capable of healing, but now that he's dead, our options are exhausted. She's got this limited view of who Jesus is and, and what he's capable of. Then in verse 22, she says, look, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now, you and I might think, well, here's a little hint that Martha is saying to Jesus, if you would ask for my brother to be raised from the dead, the father would do that. But that's not what she's asking. Jesus says to her, Martha, your brother will live again. She says, I know. At the resurrection, at the end of days, he'll rise again. She has this 
theology, this understanding. She's decided on what she believes, but Jesus, when, she's, when he says Lazarus will rise again, isn't talking about the end of days. He, he means this day. In just a few moments, your brother's going to live again. But Martha shows the shallowness of her faith. She's decided in these things. She knows certain things, but there's a lack of heart connection to what she knows. Later in verse 27, Martha makes an incredible statement about the person of Jesus. She calls him Lord and she says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Surely this statement shows that Martha gets it. There's one person, surely, in this whole scenario who sees Jesus rightly and believes him truly. And even though she uses all the right titles, Lord, Christ, Son of God, she misses it entirely. You fast forward to verse 39 where Jesus says, remove the stone from the tomb. It's Martha who jumps in front of Lord Christ, Son of God, Jesus, and says, no, he stinks too bad. In all of her theological acumen, she tries to stop the miracle. She has a shallow faith, a sub-Christian faith. Faith. It's a faith that has all the words right, all the titles, all the theology decided, but it lacks a heart experience. I wonder if that's true for you this morning. We could do a little theological quiz. Do you believe this, this, and this, and this? And you would give the holy grunt and nod your head in approval. Amen. Yes, I believe those things. I know those things. But does it lack a connection to your everyday life? Is Jesus, for you, merely the cosmic vending machine in the sky to give you the things you have earned and the things you want when you pray in your formulas. In Jesus' name, amen. That's a sub-Christian faith. It's not a gospel faith. In August of 2005, my family and I were living right outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And I was doing youth ministry, and, and I was attending seminary at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. In August of 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit. The seminary in New Orleans sits on the highest point of elevation in the city at four feet above sea level. Uh, the seminary campus is slanted from front to back, and so as the city of New Orleans filled with water, the city is just like a giant bowl. Uh, as it filled with water, the campus from back to front also filled with water. Uh, apartment buildings destroyed, uh, classrooms destroyed, offices destroyed, and the president's home also took major damage. It was, it's placed at the front of the campus, so it didn't take as much damage, but still it was unlivable for quite a long time. From August of 2005, fast forward to May of 2006, and I was in the first graduating class after Hurricane Katrina. And as all the faculty walked in, in their regalia, cap and gown, hoods, all of these things, in walked the president of the seminary wearing a pair of blue jeans and a button-up short sleeve t-shirt, smiling just as big as he always did, walked in, took his place at the podium, and began to address us, soon-to-be graduates, in the crowd there, And he said the reason he was dressed that way is because that outfit was one of only three outfits he had with him when he evacuated the city for what everyone thought would just be a couple of days away before they were let back in. And as the city filled with water and homes were destroyed and lives were lost and despair fell, all he had were three outfits. 
He went basically to a thrift store and sorted through these donated clothes in order to find a suit and things that, that he could wear and look professional in once again. And he talked about the despair he felt as he saw the city he loved drowning and the seminary he loved suffering. And he said it was in these moments that God the Holy Spirit spoke to him and told him this, asked him this question, Chuck, do you believe what you know? Do you believe what you know? Seminary presidents do not get to have a theological knowledge separate from a heart knowledge of God. And seminary faculty do not get to know deep things apart from a heart experience with the Savior. And graduates and pastors and moms and dads and sons and daughters do not get to have a head knowledge of God apart from a a heart knowledge. We don't get to live with a shallow faith. How does Jesus respond to you and I when we know things yet we don't believe them? How does he respond to Martha in this story? Here's how he responds. He still raises Lazarus. Raising Lazarus is not an an act that the audience has merited on that day. It's an act of grace in the face of unrelenting disbelief in the person and power of Jesus Christ. No one is on Jesus' side in this story. No one argues his case. Jesus alone in the face of all of this opposition, even Martha who says the right things but believes wrong. For her, he does this incredible act of grace, and that's how he is to you and I. When our faith is short-circuited, when we believe words and titles and concepts, but our heart is not connected with them, he acts in grace towards us to bring healing and hope and restoration, to connect what we know with what we believe. Jesus is gracious when our faith is shallow. Jesus is sovereign when our faith is ignorant. Third way Jesus responds to broken faith in our story, Jesus is compassionate when our faith is hurting. Jesus is compassionate when our faith is hurting. In verses 28 through 37, now it's Mary's turn. Three kids, Lazarus is dead. Martha has already addressed Jesus. Now Mary is summoned. She comes out of the house. She comes out hot. She throws herself down at the feet of Jesus, and she says the same opening line that her sister Martha said, if you had been here, our brother would not have died, but that's all she can get out because she is swallowed in her grief. For Mary, all she sees is loss. Everything is defined by this death. Her view of Jesus is clouded by her grief. She's sobbing at his feet. Her friends, her entourage, they're around her. They see her grief. They're also grieving with her and for her. Sorrow encompasses this entire scene with Jesus and Mary and the others. Jesus' presence is little comfort at this point for that crowd. And you've been there. Maybe you are there today. You're walking Mary's road right now. How does Jesus respond to people whose faith is broken due to grief or sorrow? Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Here's what's amazing. Jesus knows how this whole scenario is going to end. 
He knows this story ends with Lazarus hopping out of the tomb alive. Heart beating, lungs pumping oxygen. He knows how this is going to end. And yet Jesus in this moment is present in the sorrow and the grief of the people he loves. He's not indifferent to it. He's not removed from it. He doesn't blame them or say, it's been four days already. You're still crying about this? Jesus weeps with those who weep. He's broken and hurting for these people that he loves. Here's a question. Who gets an audience with God? Who gets one-on-one with God? I think sometimes in our erroneous Christian thinking, we've assumed that it's the super-Christians that get to be closest to God. Those who are the most sinless, the most important, the most clerical, the mo- whatever it is, the most pious, those are the ones, surely, whom God entertains in an audience. But that's just not what Scripture shows us. In the book of Psalms, chapter 34, verse 18, we're told this, God is near to the brokenhearted. So when you are crushed by grief, when your faith is fragile due to a sorrow that feels unjust, unfair, unexplainable, You walk in the presence of the divine. And it's not just that you have company in that moment. Psalm 34, 19 goes on to say, The righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. To which Martha and Mary and Lazarus would say, Amen and Amen. You are not alone in your hurt. Jesus, our God of great compassion, is with you. In that moment, a philosopher who is a Christian helped me understand John 11 better. His name is Alvin Plantinga, and I think it's good that he's on our side of things. And here's how he talks about God's ability to grieve. So many of us feel like God is immune from suffering, but the events of the cross would tell us very different. God the Father endures all the suffering of the humiliation and the death of God the Son. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't get away from it. He takes that sorrow in infinite measure in himself. Just as God's capacity for knowledge is infinitely greater than ours, so too his capacity for grief is infinitely greater than ours. God weeps with the brokenhearted. He is present and he works healing, and redemption for every broken heart. You're not alone in your hurting faith. So our our ignorant faith, it's healed by Christ's sovereignty. Our shallow faith, that's healed by Christ's grace. Our hurting faith is healed by Christ's compassion. Fourth and final way Jesus responds to our broken faith, Jesus saves us when our faith is awakened. Jesus saves us when our faith is awakened. Verses 38 through 45. Verse 41 is the pivotal moment. The people remove the stone from in front of the tomb. Jesus prays out loud for their benefit. And then in verse 43, Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, in my imagination, this is the moment where everything goes silent. No one says anything. Perhaps everyone in attendance has their mouths covered, their noses covered, because they expect a stench to come out of the tomb. And I love what happens next. John's description in verse 44, he says, The dead man came out. You have never told a story in your life that involved that line. 
I was at Big Y in the produce section. And the door opened and the dead man came out. You've never told that story before. And he doesn't say Lazarus came out. He says the dead man came out to make sure you understand who we're talking about here. I think there's stunned silence. Maybe a a bird flutters over here, crickets chirp over here, and all you hear is the grunting of Lazarus still wrapped in his grave clothes while he comes hopping out. (laughs) And then Jesus makes the most common sense statement that anyone could make in that moment. Set him free. (laughs) Unwrap him. This guy's got to walk. He's got to see. He's got to breathe. He's got to hug. Go take care of this. And that's what they do. It's an incredible miracle. And no one expected it. No one believed this would happen. No one believed it was even possible. Not one person, when Lazarus comes hopping out, goes, Ha ha, I told you! You should have listened to me! There's no one like that in this story. Christ alone does this incredible miracle, bringing glory to himself. Everyone is stunned in this moment. I don't think merely stunned at the act of the resurrection of Lazarus, but I think stunned about what this means about Jesus. You see, the raising of Lazarus is a sign. It's not a finish line. It's a sign to a truth that is greater than this mere act. It is a sign that the one who raised him is God with us. He is the eternal creator God, the one who is the master over life and death, creator of all things, the one who gives salvation to those who believe. That's who Jesus is in this story. And what happens when unbelief is met by a demonstration of the glory of God? Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Him. The big point of this story is not the raising of Lazarus. It's the awakening of faith in people of no faith. It is the salvation of those who previously were unsaved. In Lazarus, we see a small microcosm of the story of the lives of the people in this story. They were dead in their sin. No hope of their own to raise themselves, to heal themselves, to forgive themselves, atone for their sin. They're dead in their sin Christ is the one who brings life. Christ is the one who raises all those who come to him by faith. Not long after this moment in Bethany, John, our author, would stand before another tomb. This was the tomb Jesus was buried in after his crucifixion. And John describes what he saw. The stone rolled away. The grave clothes are not still around Jesus. They're lying on a heap, this face cloth neatly folded on the slab, And John says in chapter 20, verse 8, I saw and I believed. This is where you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, might say, hey, that's, that's good. Let me see someone raised from the dead and I'll believe. North side, uh, you have seen in the reading of this word today. Back rows. You, in in the reading of this word, you have more knowledge than Abraham, Moses, David ever had. Hey, Southside, these are not alternative facts. This is not mythology. This is eyewitness account. John records what he saw that day. This word is trustworthy and true. And you've seen the man raised from the dead. And you've seen the God who came to be with us. The God who laid down his life for you. Greater than Lazarus' resurrection 
is that God, the eternal Son, took on flesh, dwelt among us, and laid down his life. When Jesus died, he died in your place for your sin. And he died your death so you could live his life. And when he calls you to him and you say yes in faith, everything changes for you. You go from dead to alive forevermore. You go from condemned in sin to forgiven in sin. You go from unrighteous to possessing the very righteousness of Christ. Not judged on your own works, but judged holy and righteous based on the perfect sinless life of Jesus Christ. This story is an invitation to believe. To everyone who reads it, that we would quit trusting in our own sense of things and instead we would give our lives over entirely, completely to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what John 11 has told us this morning. Our faith is susceptible to damage from all kinds of things, all kinds of issues. We may be people with an ignorant faith. We may be people with a shallow faith. We might have a hurting faith. We might have no faith. Jesus doesn't tell us to fix it, get it right, act better, do the thing. Jesus comes to us in sovereignty and grace and compassion and power to rescue us in all of our brokenness. You know, when we left our Kansas house, most of the little repairs had been done. It was in better shape than it had ever been in. We're selling a house nicer than one we had ever lived in before, but it wasn't finished. That work is never finished. There's still jobs that needed a future fix, you'll come to Jesus today, if you'll say yes to him as he calls you to faith, he's going to fix what's broken now. And he's going to fix every little fracture to come. And one day he'll bring you into that place where everything is fixed, everything is set right, and you behold the glory of God the Son for all eternity. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we praise you for this word. It's a word that our souls need. We are incapable on our own, in and of ourselves, to do anything but embrace our sin and pursue it. But you are a God of grace. You are a Savior who loves us. And so you call us, you awaken us from that sin, and you bring us to a place of trust. God, we need that this morning. I pray this morning for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. They're not followers of yours. God, it may be that they've been on a long journey to faith and this is that pivotal moment where you call them, they turn from their sin and themselves and they turn to you in faith. Lord, I ask that you would do a saving work this morning. I know that you will when we say yes to you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith who come in here struggling today, limping, hurting because of various situations. You know our hearts, you know our needs And God, I know that you will pour out grace and mercy in abundance as you work for our healing. God, let us be a church that walks in faith. And every challenge, every trial, every diagnosis, every funeral, every hardship, God, let our faith remain firm, focused on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we love you. Thank you for being gracious with us in all of our brokenness. 
Lord, bring faith anew or renewed this morning as we say yes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.